Hello, everyone. We'll just let people shove through the virtual doors of our virtual town hall and get cracking for today's Australia at Home discussion. 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. This is an episode of Climactic Live. In each of Australia's capital cities, there are more events about the climate crisis happening than one person can attend. And with events now digital, there's even more available. Climactic Live adapts these events to audio, cutting the fluff and leaving the substance. Hear from Australia's leading speakers, and grassroots voices whenever and wherever you like. To subscribe to this show or any of the shows on the Climactic Collective, please visit climactic.com.au. This hour-long lunchtime conversation has been edited by me for clarity and brevity. No significant content edits have been made. Just a content warning before you begin that this event discusses mortality and death Especially in the context of the ongoing pandemic, please be aware of this. And if you're not up for discussion of such material, it's okay to check back later. And now to introduce this event is the MC Peter Lewis, Director of Essential Media and regular columnist for Guardian Australia. Over to you, Peter. Particular shout out for all our friends in Melbourne who I know are still, you know, living on the front line of the public health response to this pandemic. It's public health that's really going to be the discussion today through the frame of climate and Paddy Manning's fantastic new book, Body Count. Before we get into the discussion, though, I want to acknowledge that wherever we are around Australia, we are all of us on Indigenous land. I'm on the land of the Gadigal people, the Aura Nation, and like all of you, I pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise the land we're on was never ceded. I can see so many familiar faces. It's great to have you all coming back in again. For anyone that's new to this, though, we like to run these events is very relaxed and inclusive. We encourage people to turn their cameras on, put on gallery view so you get a sense of the clicking over 150 people that are in the room at the moment. And to use the chat, firstly, to introduce yourself. Secondly, if you've got any tech problems, to shout out to Ariane, who's running tech support today. But most importantly, to ask questions. So we'll be pulling out questions from the room and putting them to Paddy and our other guest, Fiona Armstrong, as the discussion emerges. So... Today, Body Count. Paddy Manning writes books the way most people make Sunday dinners. And his latest book, Body Count, is a series of personal accounts of the human cost of climate change. Now, Paddy would normally be swanning around the country doing book clubs now, um, but one of the tragic things for an author in this time is that those events just aren't possible. So we're the next best thing, guys. You know, as someone that has done a book tour, that you don't get a lot of people in the room, but it's a great opportunity to talk about your ideas and to get a first-hand feedback on people of how things have gone, but also importantly to sell books. So the other thing we'll be doing through this discussion every now and then is putting in a link to Patty's book. If you click and buy it today, we'll work out some way of getting um, a signature to you at some stage in the future. So I just want to, before we get going, introduce Patty, introduce Fiona Armstrong, who's the Executive Director of the Climate and Health Alliance, and say hi to both of you. And the way that we often start out our Australia at Homes is just to see how both of you have been going through this crazy time. So firstly, Patty, welcome. Thanks for sharing your book with all of us. And how are you going? Thanks, Peter. Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, going pretty well. Um, getting a bit bored of writing about COVID, I've got to say. Um, not to mention being stuck um, at home. Yeah, that's my wind. Uh, but I suppose there could be worse things. And uh, uh, I've got a job. You know, I suppose really it is a kind of, um, you know, once in a lifetime event that we're going through. And even if it is, uh, even if even if the daily kind of long, long-winded press conferences and so forth that I end up covering um, can drag on, 
um, it is still kind of unprecedented times. So I shouldn't complain. It's it's a good time to be a journalist. And I'm a hopeless MP. I should MC. I'm not even an MP and never will be. <laughs> um, I should have pointed out also that Paddy um, is the monthly's political contributing editor and he does the daily missive slash blog slash email blast, um, which is fantastic reading. If you're not signed up to that, you probably should be. And Paddy, in terms of covering an event like this on a daily basis, what's changed about the way that you report on the world when it's such a single big event that you're trying to make sense of day by day? I've never seen any story dominate the news in my, you know, going back to whatever, it was September 11, the financial crisis, nothing has taken over the media the same way as this pandemic uh, in my lifetime. So every day, every angle is kind of pandemic related and how it feels anyway. So uh, so it can, it can sometimes feel like a grind or a, you know, Groundhog Day. Um, although I have to admit, I've never seen the movie Groundhog Day. So don't ask me any questions about that. But, um, but yeah, I do, I do find, um, myself flipping between, oh my God, this is incredible. All the assumptions that were applicable up until March, you know, uh, about where we were, um, sitting politically and economically and how, you know, post-election and uh, climate related, everything is, are all out the window. Uh, and you know anything is possible again, and 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 feeling like wow, this is an amazing time, and then sometimes feeling like oh, I just want it to be over, and I want the lockdowns to be over, and I want the daily case count and the daily death toll um, to be over. And uh, I suppose like that, I, I suppose just about every Australian is um, is in that boat. And hi, Fiona. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. How's your life changed through this period, and how are you going? Thanks, Peter. Um, well, in stage four lockdown in Melbourne, so it's getting a little bit tiresome, you know, they're being out for an hour a day. Thank God we've had a bit of sunshine. It's extraordinary how you know, incredibly grateful Melburnians and um, Victorians suddenly feel when the sun's out. We're not doing what we anticipated doing after the Black Summer, which was launching into, you know, really accelerated action on climate change when those bushfires, unprecedented bushfires with a force equivalent to an atomic bomb kind of exploded along the East Coast. And finally, begin, people began to get what we've been talking about in terms of the health impacts of climate change. You know, people were deeply affected, even if they weren't in those areas um, or being exposed to the air pollution that blanketed the East Coast. And people were incandescent with rage really about the inaction that had got us to that point and we were feeling pretty hopeful after that summer that this was a moment in which to push forward on climate change and health and um, the world gave us the pandemic which is another health impact which is um, you know contributed to by climate change so it was a different kind of outcome but it's been a bit of a constraint on our pushing forward on for climate action. And you know, that link between climate and the pandemic is something that I'm fascinated in digging into with you guys over the course of this hour. But I wanted to start off, Patty, just with the motivations for writing this book, you know, in a way, it's a very personal book and a very political book at the same time. Where'd you get the idea? And how did the whole thing come together? I had this idea about three years ago, and in fact, Fiona was one of the very first people, and there was two people, uh, and also a climate scientist, who I emailed an, an outline to say, um, what do you think of this idea? The idea is that we've had like 10, 15, 20, maybe more years of debate about climate, but I think the public has tuned out because it's kind of climate waffle. It's kind of like, oh, what percent of, you know, emissions reductions are we targeting this week and what parts per million of CO2 are in the atmosphere and what's the impact on electricity bills? And somehow the debate has lost its impact. And, and I thought that a way to cut through was to try and tell the stories of the people who've lost the most to climate change. And so what happens, it seems to me, every time having, you know, written about climate on and off for, as a journalist for more than a decade, uh, it seems to me that what happens every time there's a natural disaster, it's somehow seen as politicising or opportunistic to start talking about climate change at that time while people are going in the middle of a tragedy. And the science isn't clear at that time. The science takes, you know, sometimes years to come in as to, you know, whether you can definitively attribute a 
particular extreme weather event to warming and to what degree, and it, it contributed to the severity or the frequency of that event. And so the debate is actually never held. We never actually joined the dots between mm. this series of increasingly severe and increasingly frequent natural disasters and the human toll that it's taking. And, and it's so weird I, because if it was, um, if it's road deaths, as soon as there's a car crash, there'll be a road safety warning. But when in the past people have made comments about bushfire and climate, they're seen as exploiting misery and as if they're not playing by the rules. It's really interesting, different standards, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's ridiculous. And actually, I think it started to change in this Black Summer, but I didn't know that when I embarked on the book, of course. I started it in 2017. I didn't get, I didn't get going uh, until uh, early last year. Um, and then, of course, found that I was writing the book in the middle of this unprecedented bushfire season after years of drought, uh, heat wave, and then also bushfires taking over, you know, like 10 plus million hectares and uh, a real body a real body count occurring as I, as I was writing so just i think in that summer we started to see the public uh, you know from the ground up not the political class but the public the victims of these disasters actually speaking up and going well if not now when if we're not going to talk about climate change right now when it's killing us when are we and you remember there was a, a press conference which i describe in the in the book uh, where Greg Mullins, who was the, the head of a, a group of, um, he was a former um, fire chief in New South Wales and also head of a group of emergency leaders, 23 of them, who, who called for climate action and, and directly did connect the, you know, disastrous, disastrous bushfire season with global warming. And he said exactly that point. Whenever there's, you know, the Grenfell Tower goes up, uh, everyone wants to talk about the cause. You know, if there's a train crash, everybody wants to talk about the cause. But when there's a natural disaster linked to global warming, nobody wants to make the connection with warming. And, uh, and I think the patients sort of ran out over that summer. I felt as though, just as Fiona was suggesting a second ago, as, as though, well, maybe this book will be timely in helping to, helping to <laughs> kind of facilitate a conversation about loss of life that is actually linked to this hotter world that we're sort of galloping into. I just started going around to all the towns around Australia where, you know, and a lot of them are regional towns where these disasters had struck and bowling up and going to the pub and saying, look, do you know the family of X, Y, and Z? If I knew the people that, I knew the names obviously of the people who died and trying to get to them and talk to them about their thoughts about climate change. So tell me about some of the stories that you have brought to life in this book. Some of the people. So I sort of get asked, uh, which is the most, you know, which was the most powerful story and I can never answer it every single time I get stumped. I spoke to the husband of a woman, Alison Tenner. Um, his name is David. She died in the Canberra bushfires in 03. And I think that arguably um, she's one of the first kind of casualties of climate change in Australia because, you know, scientists say that was a fire that um, at the time, you know, shocked the scientific community. It was started by dry lightning. There was hundreds and hundreds of lightning strikes that started those fires um, in 03 that spread across New South Wales, ACT and Victoria. Most often there's a human source for, for fires, actually, but they'd never seen, you know, dry lightning start fires of such magnitude before. And these were the first where that happened and took human life. And I spoke to David. Um, he was a former Air Force engineer, maintenance engineer. Uh, he was stationed up in Richmond on the day that the fires went into the western suburbs of Canberra. And no climate activist by any means. He re retired with, you know, post-traumatic stress but, uh, and was part of a small class action against the ACT government. But he's no activist. But in talking to him about global warming, you know, he, he told me, yeah, he does believe that, well, if it can be shown those fires were started by dry lightning, well, then I think you can argue that it's linked to climate change. And, of course, that, that is the case. So it's a kind of interesting conversation where he hadn't had that debate before. He's not, not a climate denier either. He's not a sceptic. He's not an activist. He's just thinking through a, a question, not for the first time, but, you know, I really did get the sense that he hadn't actually thought about it as a climate fueled disaster. 
before. You got fire and you got flood, which kind of makes sense to me. But then you go into an area like heat. Explain the arguments around heat. Um, people die, older people dying of heat exhaustion, and the story in your book of the the chap in the in the motorized chair. Yeah, well, I mean, as a be obvious to everyone listening, I'm no expert. I'm just a journalist, so I've just I've not tried to prove that anyone was killed by climate change because um, so all I've done is so, I've sought relevance, not proof. Yet I've tried to consult with experts along the way, both on the climate side and the health side, including Fiona, uh, about, OK, have I got this series of events right? And uh, and, you know, I've just struck some off uh, that didn't seem whether, you know, the fingerprint of climate change wasn't so strong. But interestingly enough, Heat is the one, if you look over the previous century, heat is the biggest killer uh, by a country mile of Australians. Uh, you know, it accounts for more deaths than all other natural hazards put together, whether it's fire or flood or earthquakes, heat is bigger than all of them. And heat is also the area where the climate fingerprint is strongest. You know, it's almost unarguable, uh, according to the scientists that I interviewed. And yet it was very hard to find people who had actually succumbed to heat wave because it's very underreported medically. People, it's often reported as a stroke or a heart attack. I should say reported, I mean, I mean recorded. There's this concept of a statistical death where it's an excess death. It's more, it's the, it's an increase in the rate of death above what would normally occur. Um, and there's, there's, and Fiona can, I'm sure, talk at more length about this, but there's a there's a well-known kind of harvesting effect so that it's the frail, it's the young, it's the elderly, it's the vulnerable who are who are the first to die in a heat wave. So it was I found it very hard to find someone. But I but there was a doctor, Kim Liu, who is from an organization called Doctors for the Environment Australia, talking at a Stop Adani rally back in Parramatta in Western Sydney in the lead up to last year's election. And she was saying one of her patients, she'd been a um, GP for, you know, 15 years out in Western Sydney, and one of her patients had gone up to Bunnings on his mobility scooter on a 40-degree-plus day and then subsequently died. And she wrote down alongside the heart attack, and he had a lot of comorbidities. He was diabetic and he'd had a bypass before. But she also wrote heat on the death certificate for the very first time. And I thought, that's an incredible story. So I followed that up and, and the guy's name was Chuck McLeod and I spoke to his daughter. And again, she's not a climate activist. She just said, I, I'm happy to talk to you about how my dad died. I just want to get the word out, you know, look after your old folks in the heat. And so, you know, I thought it was quite a touching story in a way that this guy is old and cantankerous and decides after a beer and a half that he was going to go up um, just, you know, a couple of days after Christmas, he was going to go up to Bunnings and bugger what his doctor said and bugger what um, his daughter said. He was going to go up on the 20 minute round trip. But then sadly, it was too much for him. I might bring Fiona in at this point. Um, so we obsess over death counts. We obsess over it when it comes to the road toll you know, the indicators at the moment in terms of the pandemic are around, you know, death count. Do we actually have a matrix for measuring climate death at the moment, Fiona? And if not, you know, how do we build a picture? Not really, unfortunately. And for the reason that Paddy pointed out, that these deaths are recorded, you know, related to the presentation of people's systems and the organs that are affected um, that are you know appear when they present to emergency or so and that tends to dictate how their deaths are recorded I mean to take it further from Kim Liu's assignation of heat as a cause of death in that instance I mean Dr Anna Greta Hunter and I think you mentioned this in the book Paddy has argued that climate change should appear on some people's death certificates but the reality is we don't collect that data the, the dots are not being joined there's no obligation and um, to collect data um, certainly people are arguing that we need to do a much better job and heat is definitely a place where we can start. I've just been alerted to um, a comment in the chat, John Englert pointing to an article that was published by Anna Greta and Simon Quilty and others um, a few months ago saying that the statistics around heat deaths in Australia are likely to be underestimated 50-fold, I think was the figure. You know, an extraordinarily large number. 
Um, and people are dying across the world. You know, people will be dying right now um, in the heat wave that's happening in Europe. There was a very dramatic heat wave um, in Europe. And again, I think, Patty, you referred to this in the book. Tony McMichael did a lot of work in relation to trying to do the estimates of the, the deaths from a, a dramatic heat wave in Europe in 2003. 70,000 excess deaths in that one summer. So, you know, if that wasn't a wake-up call then, I remember, you know, reading about it at the time and thinking, good grief, this will absolutely deliver change. And it did deliver some change in terms of adaptation and, and responsiveness and kind of um, systems to alert people to checking on those who were vulnerable. But it, it didn't translate into climate action because those connections weren't made. Questions coming through. Yeah, my question, Patty, was around the LA, California heatwave fire stuff and Fiona. If you think that that happening kind of, you know, it happens here over a period of three, four months and then almost a month apart, maybe it starts up in the Northern Hemisphere, um, whether that is starting to be the penny that's dropping for people. So this week, they've already had a big heat wave in California, fires and grid going out. You know, the other knock on that makes this challenge that I'm sure Fiona would talk about is, you know, knock out the grid because of heat and fire. And you've got this series of events that happen where people don't have air conditioning or necessarily some of the other things that refrigeration that can cool them down and, and keep them alive. So whether you think this kind of cyclical back and forth between here, California and other parts of the world, is that starting to drop with people in terms of awareness? Well, I definitely think it's done. I mean, that's one of the issues that Greg Mullins um, was trying to raise with the with the federal government and the other emergency chiefs last year, which was that the fire season is getting longer. It's actually it's overlapping now with the fire season in um, in North America. It's harder for us to get you know things like air tankers when we need them. Uh, and so, yes, I think that you know uh, there's a book um, just been reissued, Stephen Pine's kind of history. I think it's called The History of Fire. And he talks about how California and uh, Victoria are two of the uh, most fire-prone regions in the world. And I think that is definitely impinging on the Australian consciousness now that we've got, not only that, we've also got the wildfires in Siberia. And, you know, it's kind of, I think the penny is starting to drop. Uh, but one of the kind of broader arguments that I'm making in this book is that it's not so much climate change killing us, it's ignorance killing us. That where is the great public awareness campaign by the federal government, equivalent to the campaign, for example, that they ran in the AIDS pandemic or, you know, uh, against, you know, plain packaging for tobacco, uh, you know, to alert the public to the dangers, the health dangers here and now, not to the environment or future generations, but to your health here and now. Where's the, where's the federal government warning about that? Notice, Peter, that um, one of the chats, actually one of the women I interviewed in this book, Imogen Jubb, um, who Imogen, she was, welcome. Yeah, who just said she was happy to talk about her experience. And um, I won't, oh. I'll just throw to you, Imogen, wherever you are. I can't see Yeah, you, away you go, Patty and Imogen, in conversation. Hi, Imogen. Hi, so, yeah, my mum died early or late in January this year, which was exactly, well, it's, you know, it's one of those situations where it's a bit hard to tell, but she had a heart condition existing, but the smoke and the heat and the stress of the fires over summer I think all played a role in her passing and my dad actually said that he thought climate change played a role in her dying which was a bit of a surprise to me he's not really he's quite aware of climate change because I've worked in it for a long time but it was a bit of a surprise to hear him say that. Did um, you say Canberra? Yeah in Canberra. Yeah so um, that what it's had the worst air quality in the world for a number of days there yeah? Yeah, it was pretty horrific. I looked at the stats of it all. The air quality was horrific. The temperatures were, you know, five to six degrees above average for the summer, you know, your normal Canberra summer temperatures, which are quite hot already. You know, I feel like it played a role in it. And, you know, lots of people talk about climate change affecting their grandchildren or, you know, they're really worried about the quality of their grandchildren's lives. And, you know, I've worked in climate for a long time. And to be honest, it never occurred to me that it would affect my parents' health, I think changing that conversation is maybe part of it. Maybe you need to stop thinking about your kids and start thinking about yourselves because it's all happening faster and quicker than most people imagined. And, you know, I think also lots of the projections around climate are pretty clear, but I don't think anyone foresaw these sorts of scenarios with air quality and heat like we experienced over summer. 
health policy that can manage the stuff is one of the key outcomes around keeping people safe. I was just going to ask Fiona, as a public health expert, that notion of consequence and building out the consequence of global warming, climate change, however you want to approach it, that's kind of the challenge in terms of shifting the conversation, isn't it? I guess it is, yes, because climate change can seem very distant and far away in terms of time, although, as Imogen says, you know, it's it's right here and right now, but it's hard to look out your window and kind of see those events that are clearly linked to climate change. But that's where the health frame is really important because when you do start to talk to people about the health impacts of climate change, and those are very varied, you know, from extreme weather events to infectious diseases to impacting food and water security, you know, impacting people's ability to work, there's um, air pollution and aeroallergens and so on. Um, When you do take people on a journey and connect the dots for them, and research from Sustainability Victoria shows that people don't readily make the connections between climate change and health, but when you do connect the dots for them, it seems obvious and they wonder why they didn't understand it before. It makes sense to them. And then they start to think about who knows about that and who should have been telling them that goes to you know the public education campaign that that patty is talking about because you know people start to think gosh this is a a threat to my health right now and that of my family the evidence around it is very strong the world health organization are you know issuing very sort of strenuous threats around this talking about it as a health emergency why didn't i know and why hasn't the government told me why haven't they you know been putting my interests at the forefront and making sure that I'm aware so that I can take health protective measures and why aren't they taking action on climate change? So it's a really great way to make that bridge and to take people on a journey to um, make climate change personal, relevant and in the immediate term Mm. and also transition people to an expectation about action in terms of mitigation and adaptation Mm. to protect them. So do you see where we are now as a result of neglect or willful disinformation? Because, you know, it strikes me the similarities with tobacco um, 50 years, 40 years ago. Yeah, look, it's a combination, isn't it? I mean, governments are ignoring evidence that they don't want to know about, um, that's uncomfortable for them to know about because it, you know, contrasts with the um, interests of those who are, you know, um, filling their coffers when it comes to re-election. It's complicated. The solutions aren't simple. I think there's a a combination of ignoring the evidence and willful negligence, really, because I think, you know, the the evidence is well understood um, over many decades. Tony McMichael writing about this over three decades. The World Health Organization and Lancet Medical Journal issuing ever more strident calls for action over decades as well, but almost zero from our federal government in terms of action or a response that recognises the health impacts of climate change. Despite that now being embedded in the Paris Agreement, in the preamble, there's an obligation for nations to consider citizens' right to health in the context of climate change, which means that they have to consider what the impacts of climate change are on the population when they think about climate policy and what the opportunities are to protect health through climate action. But that is that is not happening um, at all. We're seeing some emerging action from the states and territories, but it's it's slow, but um, it's it's beginning. Before we get into the second part of the discussion, we had a question from Tara, who's actually with the uh, Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation. You deal with a few public health issues on a daily basis? Especially in Victoria at the moment, yes. So you had a question a little bit earlier. Yeah, more like a comment. So in 2014, when a rugby player was killed with what at the time was called a king hit and is now called one punch, there was a huge outcry. Legislation changed. It's now a major offence. And you look at the impact that we have with climate change, we can, and we've seen this with COVID as well, we can make substantive change when it's important enough to the people who have the power to make decisions. 
And yet here we are, as Paddy was saying, more than 20 years on to this discussion with very little changing. So it's yeah, not that we it don't is. have the capacity, it's that there aren't enough people who have the power to make the change with the will to change. Yeah, and you'd see this every day in your general reporting, Paddy. Yeah, I have to say I found, you know, there are a lot of things. It's not like we're a rabbit in the headlights and um, going to be run over by climate change if there's nothing we can do. You know, like I expected that uh, there was a risk this book would be grim and depressing, including for myself writing it. But I found myself kind of inspired and galvanised, um, not so much about, oh, yeah, this has got to get back into the climate wars, but what came through in doing the interviews, and I decided to kind of try and get as close as to tell, you know, fewer stories better rather than skate over hundreds of different stories. So I wanted to make sure that um, the people that I spoke to were comfortable with what they've said and it wasn't you know, a quick hit in any way, even if I wrote the book in a year, which was fairly fast. What I found was that I was inspired by the kind of love and um, solidarity that, you know, came across from the people that I was interviewing. So it kind of gave me hope that Australians will, when the chips are down, will look after each other. And um, they are aware of, you know, the seriousness of the climate situation increasingly. and, And they will, at the right time, act I, I, I that might sound a bit woolly but in story after story people who i was bowling up to and and out of the blue saying do you think that the you know death of your father mother child was related to climate change and they were they were kind of stepping back because often even if it was an event that was 15 years ago or even like black saturday huge debate about whether it's related to climate change but still that's not resolved in the you know you you bowl up to king lake and uh, people go, oh, no, no, it had nothing to do with it. You get the same divisions that you get in the rest of the community. But what you do, what you definitely get um, talking to people is the sense that ordinary Australians will rally together, look after each other in a crisis. That gave me a lot of hope and was inspiring that actually we, when, when the time comes, we will sort this um, and sort it with that kind of common sense that I think Australians, one of our national kind of characteristics Can we move on to the current context, which is obviously this global pandemic? I've read in some places, and you you deal with it at the end of your book, and I'm sure you rushed to actually sort of deal with this as you were trying to get it to the publishers, Patty, but the notion that the pandemic is, is not totally separated from the drivers of climate change, particularly deforestation. Where does that land? I'm interested in both your and Fiona's view on where are the connections with the pandemic and the broader issues around climate? Well, I'll, I'll just be very quick because I'll just boil it down to the simplest possible terms because I'm a, I'm a hack. Uh, but basically, the way I understood it, including from um, interviewing Fiona and reading her work and the work of some great Australian scientists, including Tony McMichael, who Fiona's mentioned, The way I boiled it down in my head was that the things that are driving um, warming are the things that are driving the new age of pandemic. So I spoke to uh, a couple of scientists about why are we seeing this increasing, this rise of zoonoses? Why why is that? And uh, over the last 30 years, you know, um, Ebola, AIDS, you know, SARS, MERS, bird flu, we have just had a, we've had a lot of warning about, about this age of pandemics and they have been increasing. What I took from it was that the things that are forcing animals and humans together are also causes of climate change. So the overpopulation and overconsumption and the deforestation that's forcing animals to come into the human environment, that is where we're, a lot of these diseases, uh, that's how a lot of them are starting. So, uh, yeah, I interviewed scientists about it, and I also interviewed a widow of um, Tony McMichael, who was a legend just for anyone who doesn't know. I learned in the process of researching this book was, a, you know, I think a, an under-recognised Australian scientist, even though he had an Order of Australia and an emeritus professor at ANU and a very distinguished career. But, um, yeah, he wrote a book called Planetary Overload in 1993, and he wrote the first health section of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, Assessment Report, second assessment report in 1995, uh, he was a pioneer. His work has been compared with Rachel Carson. He was a pioneer of the connections between climate and health. And uh, and I interviewed his wife, who is a, a fellow academic at um, 
ANU, and she kind of told me about about these connections and about the warnings that Tony McMichael was making about, you know, yes, about about the connections, but also that the bitter irony that he he, he himself fell um, succumbed in 2014 at the age of 72 to an unknown influenza strain. So he was up in Darwin. He had had his flu shot. Uh, he was still going like a train by all who knew him. Uh, very, you know, lots of work to do and uh, and involved in his third book. But there was uh, naval exercises on and a lot of sailors coming through Darwin at that point. And somehow he's picked up um, an unknown influenza strain that's ultimately taken his life. And it's a kind of, the flu is, it's getting worse and coming around more often, as Judith told me. And, you know, she she believed that he, Tony himself was part of the kind of body count in a way. And so, um, yeah, I found the connections between the kind of warming and the increasing incidence of pandemics to be uh, kind of fascinating and also kind of terrifying, uh, but also pointing to the solutions to the two things quite similar. And you kind of feel that yourself in this in the middle of these lockdowns, that the, the lockdown is quite green. So kind of teasing that out, I found was fascinating. Fiona, I understand you actually studied under Tony in earlier times and or your work's been informed by his work? Well, certainly Tony was a mentor and a, and a hero. So, yes, in, influenced by his work. And, I mean, um, I think if only Tony was alive now because an epidemiologist, as someone who, um, who deeply understood both infectious diseases and planetary health and climate change and health, he, he would be a stellar guide for us right now. Fortunately, we've got great people like Peter Doherty and so on who are who are picking that up. But yeah, it's certainly the case. I mean, it's been interesting because we talk about and have talked about for years, the rise of infectious diseases increasing, the rise of the risk from infectious diseases increasing related to climate change. And yet, you know, when the pandemic arrived, it was quite unexpected in terms of, you know, just how virulent it was and, and what a dramatic impact it's had. It's certainly the case, though, that infectious disease experts have been preparing for this for decades and saying, you know, this is exactly what we can expect to happen because of our treatment of the natural environment, our destruction of the natural world, and the fact that we are encroaching on virgin ecosystems. Well, there's no such thing anymore because our, you know, deforestation and um, expansion of urban environments and so on, whether it's for mining or new cities or roadways brings us in closer contact with the natural world and with other species and and our activities causing ill health in other species. Therefore, you know, they are more likely to carry disease and we're closer to them. So it's more likely to to jump over to us. So I wrote a piece early in the pandemic with my colleagues, Tony Capon, who's the Professor of Planetary Health at Monash, Director of Monash Sustainable Development Unit, and Roe McFarlane, who's been researching, um, and I think, uh, Paddy, you've interviewed Roe in the book, um, researching zoonotic disease and links between animal and human health for a very long time. And our message was that coronavirus is a wake-up call, that our war with the environment is leading to pandemics. I mean, we've, we've had other zoonoses in Australia in the past. I mean, internationally, we've seen sort of Zika virus. Um, here in Australia, we've had Hendra, but um, COVID-19 is is probably the disease X that, you know, World Health Organization has been preparing for. And the reason that we're seeing it is because we're in the middle of a mass extinction event and our impact on the natural world, both from our behavior and also our contribution to climate change is making both of those things worth. It's making us more vulnerable, air pollution from the same causes that contribute to climate change is making us more vulnerable to COVID. So in places in the world where people are exposed to very poor air quality, there's poorer outcomes in relation to COVID. Um, uh, Tony McMichael would say climate change is a threat multiplier. It just makes every threat to health worse. Uh, The good news is that the solutions are the same to halt our destruction of the natural world, to invest in, you know, securing biodiversity and ecosystems because they are the foundation for human health and well-being. And to do that, we need to cut emissions because global warming is creating enormous pressures and leading to ecosystem collapse.
This is where I think it gets difficult with the public health frame around this. So normally public health messaging around, say, smoking or diet is very much, you, you just throw a bucket of money at it and you get people to change their behaviour and you might regulate the offering to the public. This is much more complex, isn't it? This is a systemic challenge that creates public health implications, but it's not something that's going to be fixed by um, a bit of public awareness. Not fixed by a bit of public awareness, but the solutions are available to us and they're good for health. So moving to cleaner energy systems, both for energy and transport, is going to clean up the air and address that massive air pollution that we have each year worth, you know, billions of dollars in, in health damages from deaths and lost productivity you know, investing in restoring our ecosystems and securing our food systems, obviously very good for health because the, the, the longer we delay in doing that, the more we lose in terms of agricultural productivity and the opportunity to secure health systems and affordable food for everybody. Active and public forms of transport are low carbon forms of transport and they happen to be good for health and well-being at the same time. So that's another really important message associated with the links between climate change and health is that climate solutions are health solutions. And Maria Nera from, and her colleagues at World Health Organization are very fond of saying the Paris Agreement is a public health agreement. And what they're saying in relation to that is that action on climate change is the, the best thing that we can do to secure global public health. Patty, in your, your final chapter, you write a little about the idea of a planetary health model. That kind of is the bringing together a, a different way of thinking about the way all these systems interact. Yeah, as uh, Fiona mentioned before, uh, talking to Tony Capon, who she, um, yeah, I'm going to do a, a launch with him next week, uh, actually. But, uh, but yeah, he, he talks about the sustainable development goals that basically you have to, um, there is a framework for action you know, that can address all of these problems at the same time. And it's been agreed uh, by the UN. Uh, there are 17 sustainable development goals. And so, you know, it's a bigger picture than uh, just climate or just pandemics. It's, um, yeah, much a sort of broader agenda. You know, I had never thought about it. I mean, uh, to reveal my own ignorance, I had never thought about human health as being linked to animal health. I'd never thought about natural environments as being disease regulators. You know, for me, these were all eye-opening concepts. But as soon as it's like what Fiona was saying before, when once the health consequences of climate change are kind of put in front of you, you go, of course, that's obvious. I think it was Zika virus. It was Ray McFarland talking me through Zika virus, how the bats that, you know, the trees that were chopped down, I think it was Malaysia, don't quote me, but, uh, you know, I think it was the chopping down of trees forced bats to get mangoes out of pig pens. And out of that process... Uh, the pigs picked up this virus off the bats and the pigs then slaughtered and eaten by humans caused the virus to take off, spill over, if you like, from animals to humans. And I think Ebola started with deforestation as well. The Hendra virus, you know, Roe talked about that, about how there was a dispersal of bats that was linked to the Queensland floods in 2011. And suddenly um, this Hendra virus that had sort of under control suddenly there was a rash of cases. So there's all of these myriad little connections. We can kind of go through our lives in blissful ignorance of our connections, of, of how our health depends on the health of the animals and, and nature around us. But, you know, the pandemic is sort of waking us, has sort of, given, been, like Fiona says, given us a great big wake-up call. Mm. I mean, one of the people I interviewed was a guy, uh, Peter Jackson, up in the Townsville flood. His wife died. Now, she had had chemo. She was vulnerable. She was young. She was fit, but she had had chemo, so her immunity was low. They were living in a caravan outside Townsville when floods came through in 2019. That caused an outbreak of melioidosis. Now, melioidosis is not new. It's been around forever. Not, well, I don't know about forever, but it's been around for decades up, up in the top end. It's a tropical soil disease. It comes out of the ground um, when it's wet. And if you've got a cut or something like that, healthy people would laugh it off. But someone like Leonie uh, is vulnerable and she keeled over in their caravan one day and he never got to speak to her again, say goodbye, anything. She was in intensive care within hours. She was a nurse and, uh, and then she was dead. So I interviewed the director of public health at Townsville, a guy called Stephen Donoghue, and said, well, look, 
does the tropical soil disease have anything to do with climate change? Well, if you've got increasingly severe cyclones and storms, uh, now that's a separate question, that's a climate science question, um, you know, and I interviewed climate scientists about that and they say, well, actually the connection is, you know, they might be that the storms are less frequent, uh, but more intense. We might get a, a decrease in rainfall overall, but we get more intense rainfall when it happens. Anyway, Stephen Donahue says to me, yes, I think, you know, I think you can draw the connection between warming and this, the increasing incidence of vulnerability to this tropical soil disease. And broadly, if the tropics are expanding, we're going to have more tropical disease. You know, it's that simple. It's sort of at one level, it's really complicated. At another level, it's really simple. And yeah, I felt I felt that talking to Peter about it was perfectly valid and put it in the story. And, and he felt so too. Uh, although again, he's not a scientist. He's a bloke who's lost his wife and suffered a tragedy, but happy to talk about it and not clear in his mind. Well, what's the relationship between the Townsville floods and the death of his wife? Well, you know, he in the end tells me, well, I think the fact that he was prepared to talk about it is a kind of like, yes, I think this is an important conversation. And that's all I was after is to start is to have a conversation, not beat it up or down, not try and iron out the wrinkles, just tell it as it is. Yeah, and congratulations for it, Paddy. Um, having flicked through it last night, I really encourage people to click on the link in the chat and get a copy of it. As we, We've got five minutes left. I thought we'd round out this discussion just reflecting on the way you know, largely our public institutions seem to have held up through the pandemic crisis. I know there's huge issues in nursing homes at the moment, but we've seen the way that different levels of government have swung in and, you know, worked in ways that are far more collaborative than normal. Fiona and then Patty, I guess the final thought is, so what needs to change in the broader body politic, do you think, to do justice to the notion of climate as a public health risk? In relation to pressure on our health systems, comparing climate change and COVID, that we ain't seen nothing yet in terms of what we're going to see from accelerating global warming if we fail to take action, that our health systems will not be able to cope, that we know already that our health systems are not well prepared for climate change. We've done um, work for the Queensland government developing a climate and health plan for them and interviewing health services from Brisbane up to Townsville and Cairns and out to Toowoomba, only a very small proportion of them have done any climate risk assessment to understand what climate change risks from extreme weather or pandemics or anything are going to mean for their infrastructure, on their workforce, on their supply chains. And, you know, you can see what happens in a global pandemic when you have a decline in international travel, um, that supply chains can get very tenuous. We've seen it in relation to the supply of, of PPE. Uh, we've seen, you know, very common medications, antibiotics, blood pressure pills, antidepressants, hormone re replacement therapy in very short supply because global supply chains are impacted. We're only going to see those more from climate change. So we've been very lucky in Australia so far that our health systems have held up very well. But we should not kid ourselves that they are climate ready or that they are climate resilient or that we will have the infrastructure and the processes um, in place to, um, you know, ensure that our current good health for the large proportion of the population uh, continues into the future. But, you know, that said, there's a lot that we can do. And as I said, you know, those solutions for climate change are also health solutions. It's not technology that we have to invent um, at some time in the future. It's available now. It's cheaper than the alternatives. So it's simply a matter of, of implementing it. And, um, and in order to do that, we need to create political will and we need to create a mandate for politicians to act and uh, for people to engage on the issue of climate change. It's a way of making climate change relevant, personal to people. Climate action will deliver for health very significant benefits in the short term. Improving air quality means you have a decline in respiratory emissions within weeks, you know, so the climate benefits will accumulate in the longer term. And final word to you, Paddy. You're a storyteller. What do you want people to take away finally from, from this book? That we're sort of, yeah, we're in danger, but we're in it together. 
for me, the pandemic has kind of woken us up to the obvious. We should listen to scientists. We should listen to experts. You know, the populist backlash that you see, whether it's Boris Johnson or Donald Trump or Bolsonaro, or we've had our own populists here, you know, they've kind of been exposed as a fraud and Australia has kind of good at public health. We can, but we're also, you know, one of the most, certainly amongst the rich countries, one of the most exposed and most vulnerable to warming. And we're already hot. Uh, We've got, you know, forecast scientists telling us that, you know, parts of the country will sooner rather than later be potentially uninhabitable due to heat. Uh, You know, we know it. We we need to kind of come together and, and, um, and, and do everything we can to fix it. You know, there is decades of advice, health and climate, there to guide us. And I'll try to not focus on solutions, but just to kind of focus on having that conversation about how, in fact, the human toll it's taking already through the, the true stories of, of ordinary Australians that I've spoken to. And hopefully those stories will carry the message themselves. Well, congratulations on it, mate. Um, thanks for sharing your time today with us. Thank you, Fiona. We'll be sending out a link to everyone that's here with a direct one-click, one-buy. <laughs> we'll also send out a link to the great work Fiona's team's doing at the Climate and Health Alliance. We'll be back on Friday with a, a talk about technology where I'm joined by Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch and Dan Stinton from Guardian Australia. Um, but until then, thanks, everybody, for being with us today and, you know, look after yourselves, stay safe and Stay well, and um, yeah, until next time, cheers. Thank you, Peter. And to hear that event and all the great events that Australia at Home have put together, or to watch the videos for this event or any others, just check out australiaathome.com.au or follow the link in the show notes, where you'll not only find the links Peter just mentioned to Patty's book, Body Count, to the Climate and Health Alliance, where Fiona Armstrong is executive director, but also links to other climactic episodes with people featured and mentioned in this recording, such as Imogen Jubb, Tony Capon, and Roe McFarlane. This is an episode of Climactic Live, a series that adapts events, both digital and physical, engaging with the climate crisis from across Australia and the South Pacific. From stages and Zooms to your ears, to listen to the best while you do life. If you know of an event coming up, please let the organizers know about Climactic Live. We'll be happy to provide them with easy advice to getting the best recording quality possible to allow a great podcast adaptation. Climactic Live is a production of the Climactic Collective, the podcast network by and for Australia's climate community. Learn more and get in touch from climactic.com.au. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Spencer. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.